1: Hello, you're listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. My name is Chris Lay, and I'm the Podcast Operations Manager here at Lee. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we're presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications from around America. For this collection of episodes, we're focusing on Omaha, Nebraska, where journalists from the Omaha World Herald newspaper will tell the tale of two sets of brutal double murders that took place five years apart and shocked the otherwise quiet neighborhoods where they occurred. Initially, police were confounded by the crimes, but eventually investigators found themselves on the trail of an unlikely suspect whose arrest was followed by a bizarre and high-profile trial. Episode two, which you're about to hear, was written by Omaha World Herald staff writer Henry Cordes, based on his reporting alongside fellow World Herald journalist Todd Cooper. And it was read for us by the World Herald's digital director Z Long. Now, it might go without saying, but given the subject matter here and every story that we're going to document going forward, there are some obvious content warnings to impart. There are a couple of curse words here, but they are bleeped out. Otherwise, everything you hear would be fit to print in a newspaper. That said, parents are still cautioned to give the episode a listen before sharing this with any youngsters. And now, here's Z Long reading Episode 2.
2: The following podcast includes graphic descriptions of violence. It's based on the reporting of the Omaha World Herald and the book, Pathological, written by World Herald reporters Henry Cortis and Todd Cooper, Available online through Wild Blue Press. Just past daybreak, Mother's Day 2013, Mary Brumbach awoke in her Omaha home to a very pleasant surprise. Son Owen Brumbach was on dad duty with his daughter Savannah, and the six month old was up early that day, so Owen decided to turn this Mother's Day into Grandmother's Day, making a FaceTime call from Denver to Mary and her husband, Dr. Roger Brumbach. Savannah smiled and cooed and drooled and did all the cute things that a six month old does. Watching from home on their iPad, the Brumbacks beamed. Once the call was over, Roger and Mary got back to work. There was much to do. Several weeks before, Roger had announced his plans to retire from the job he'd held the past 12 years chief of pathology at Creighton University Medical School. The couple, both 65, had decided to move to West Virginia, where both would be closer to relatives. So all around the house that Sunday were signs of preparations for this new life adventure. An empty hutch, its drawers barren. Computer equipment unplugged and stacked. Boxes marked and packed. Roger, almost half a century earlier, had started his medical career as a young prodigy. At age 19, becoming the youngest student in the very first class of Penn State University's new medical school in Hershey, Pennsylvania. During his career... The Certifiable Workaholic had written or edited 14 books, penned another 130 articles, launched and edited two medical journals, and even discovered a monkey species. Mary Brumbach, a pleasant, compassionate woman with a wisp of white hair, had met her husband in college. Once, she had her own career in law before deciding to take a back seat and support her husband's career. The Brumbacks interrupted their moving preparations just after noon that Mother's Day to take another FaceTime call this one from daughter Audrey in San Francisco. Audrey, who had followed her father into medicine, spent more than an hour chatting with Roger and Mary. At one point, Audrey razzed her mother about giving unsolicited advice to Audrey's husband. Audrey knew the crack would get a laugh, so she took a screenshot of her parents' reaction. In the photo, Roger pulls away to give himself room to bellow. Mary, beet red, mid-laugh at her daughter's zinger. For Roger and Mary... It would be the last photo of them taken alive. At the moment, the Brumbachs weren't the only ones enjoying that gorgeous Mother's Day in Omaha. Shonda Beetra, a professor and pathologist who worked alongside Roger Brumbach and Bill Hunter at Creighton University, and her husband, Agandra, were on a lunch outing with a pair of friends. In the early afternoon, right around the time the Brumbachs were wrapping up their FaceTime call with Audrey, the Beatras were driving back to their home. That's when suddenly, they got an alert on their phones. It was from the security company. A burglar alarm had just been triggered at their home. They were just minutes away, so they pulled into the driveway and Agandra got out and carefully approached the house. Casing the exterior, looking for signs of entry, Beatra ultimately found that someone had tried to push their way in through the locked French doors at the back of the home, budging them only about two inches. The break-in attempt had been thwarted by a piece of low-tech security equipment. Agondra Beatra had installed a large recliner couch months earlier after another break-in at the home. Beatra had jammed the huge piece of furniture against the inside doors to keep anyone from pushing their way in again. As he'd later say, it would have taken a man with superhuman strength to budge that couch. As it turned out, it wasn't just any burglar at the Beatra's back door. Just moments before the couple had returned home, a man in a black Mercedes SUV had driven away, angry and frustrated. That door that refused to budge had foiled his latest attempt to seek revenge against those in his past who he believed had done him wrong. Bitra, that bitch had it coming. Now he did not know where he was going next. He was only vaguely familiar with this city. He'd lived in Omaha once, about a year. But that had been a very long, long time ago. He had only been back one other time, a visit five years ago to the home of Bill Hunter that left a dark mark and shock on the city of Omaha. Buzzed on the case of beer he had picked up at a convenience store about an hour before he tried to break into the Beechra home, he suddenly spotted a sign for Wingstop, a chicken wing joint. sounded good to him. At five foot, eight, almost 300 pounds. He rarely missed a meal. Once inside, the hulking man scanned the menu, placed his wing order, and paid $7.69 with one of his overworked credit cards. At some point, as he enjoyed this meal, he pulled out his iPhone. Homicidal thoughts still raced through his brain. Perhaps he could still salvage this trip to Omaha after all. He opened up a search browser on his iPhone and typed in a name. R O G E R B R U M. B-A-C-K. A white page's entry came up, giving the home address for Dr. Roger Brumback. Conveniently, it wasn't even that far away, the map showing it was just a few miles straight west. Soon, he was back in his car with a deadly new purpose. Roger and Mary Brumbach weren't expecting Mother's Day guests. After wrapping up their FaceTime call with Audrey, Roger had returned to preparing for their move. Including giving the entryway of their home a fresh coat of paint. He had no idea what was lurking outside on this beautiful 68 degree day. Someone called at the Brumbach's door. Beyond the white wooden main door, Roger found a heavy set man in a blue dress shirt and black slacks. It's impossible to know what was in Brumbach's mind at this very moment. Perhaps he immediately recognized this man from his past, a man who was carrying a festering, 12-year-old grudge. Either way, Brumbach had little time to think about it, because the visitor pulled out a Smith & Wesson SD9 semi-automatic pistol. Brumbach and the man began struggling over the gun right there in the door's threshold. The life and death battle tripped the gun's magazine release, the shiny gold ammunition clip clunking down right there in the doorway, but not before the assailant squeezed off three shots, breaking this Mother's Day solitude. One bullet struck Brumbach in the lower leg. Another passed through his shoulder and the wooden door. The other, the fatal one, was an odd upward angle shot that ripped through his abdomen, struck his liver and a blood vessel before lodging in his back. Brumbach fell back heavily against the wooden door in the entryway. After hearing shots fired, Mary must have rushed to the door. Finding her husband on the floor, she too began struggling with the gunman, her glasses falling to the floor near her dying husband. With no clip, the gun was now inoperable, so the man turned it to more primitive use. He viciously pistol-whipped Mary, hammering her across the forehead so hard the gun actually broke into pieces. Mary must have been dazed by the head blow, which left a large gash in her forehead. The temporary incapacitation allowed the attacker to turn to other, other, more familiar means to finish her off. He went into the kitchen to forage for knives. He first pulled open what turned out to be a junk drawer, but right next to it he found what he was looking for. He grabbed a pair of weathered wood-handled kitchen knives in the process, leaving a tiny drop of Mary's blood on the counter. That little red blot would later help detect his piece together the deadly trail of the assailant that day. If Mary had been woozy from the head blow, Seeing this man, now brandishing the knives must have gotten her full attention. As a prosecutor would later put it, the diminutive woman fought with every fiber of her being. With her bare hands, the 65-year-old desperately warded off slash after slash from the knife-welding killer, enduring what had to be extremely painful wounds. She would suffer more than 20 cuts to her hands and arms. One slash carved a deep three-inch slit completely through her right wrist, Another almost completely severed her thumb. Mary's blood flew all around, on the walls, boxes, tables, and furniture, the stains later telling the story of her bitter struggle. Finally, Mary could fight no more. Fighting his way in close and grabbing her from behind, the assailant plunged the knife repeatedly into the right side of her neck. An autopsy would later reveal the blade hit its intended target, severing her artery. Then, knife in hand, the killer walks slowly back over to Roger, the leisurely pace of his stroll later forensically revealed by the trail of blood falling off the blade to the floor. Roger in all likelihood was already dead, or near dead, as he lay slumped in the entryway. No matter, just to be sure he'd finish the job and to leave his familiar grisly mark, the killer six times plunged the blade into the right side of Roger's neck, severing his artery. The killer then walked back to Mary, dropped the knife to the floor, and rolled her over to make sure she was dead. He could see his work was done here. Just like five years earlier, the mystery man's visit to Omaha had not gone exactly as planned. For a second time, two people were left dead who weren't his intended target. Nonetheless, he felt he had again achieved a measure of vengeance. The price Roger Brumback and Bill Hunter had to pay for sabotaging his career. He soon after climbed back into his Mercedes. Pulling out his phone again, he looked up where he could find the nearest freeway. In a matter of moments, he was on Interstate 80, heading east for home. In the Brumback home, blood silently pooled beneath the couple's bodies, leaving a spot on the carpet beneath Mary the size of a manhole cover. Her lifeless body lay just feet away from a small desk that was topped by a smiling 8x10 portrait of her beloved husband, his professional mugshot from the early days at Creighton. Also on the desk was a promotional folder for the moving company the Brumbacks had hired to ship their life belongings to their new home in West Virginia. On the front, a slogan in large, now tragically ironic letters, Life Never Stops Moving. Derek Moyes ducked his head under a strand of yellow police tape and strode towards the front door of the white, black-shuttered suburban home. The veteran homicide detective didn't have a lot to go on at this point. Only the initial officers report that there were two unknown deceased parties inside, an older man and a woman. Moyes talked to the uniformed officer standing guard by the door. She pointed across the way to a group of piano movers who earlier that day had made the call to 911. On this Tuesday morning, two days after Mother's Day, Jason Peterson and his crew had come to the house with a work order to haul away a no longer needed upright piano. Peterson had been curious why he got no answer after he repeatedly rang and knocked. And then he got downright suspicious when he pulled open the unlocked door to call out to anyone inside. That's when he spotted a handgun magazine setting on the threshold. He immediately told his crew to back off. He then called the cops. I just think there's something going on inside this house, he told the 911 operator. His instincts were right. The first uniform officer on the scene found a ghastly scene inside. Moyes and his partners all had the same initial thought when the call came in to the Omaha Police Homicide Bureau. A murder-suicide. They were basing that mostly off the home's location in a pricey subdivision, and the fact that there were two bodies down, a man and a woman. They'd seen lots of cases in nice neighborhoods where a lover's quarrel ended with both parties dead. In the five years since he had been a central player in the 2008 Dundee murder investigation, much had changed for Detective Moyes. In fact, it wasn't a given he'd be showing up to this new gruesome crime scene at all. Moyes had actually left homicide a year earlier after the Dundee murders, finally deciding the 24-7 on-call demands and piles of extra hours were putting too much strain on his young family. He had missed his son's first Christmas. He had missed family birthday parties. He had canceled vacations. There were just too many moments and milestones he would never get back. He transferred to a unit investigating other major crimes, like bank robberies and rapes. But it wasn't long before Moyes was begging the homicide lieutenant to take him back. He missed the challenge. He missed the special unit camaraderie that only those in homicide truly understand. By 2011, he pounced on an opening and transferred back. This was part of him now. As it happened his detective team was next in line for a case when a call came in. So just as he had with the Dundee murders five years earlier, he would handle the crime scene here. It was a fortuitous coincidence, one that would become particularly meaningful not long after Moyes walked through the front door. Moyes had arrived with two other members of his four detective team, including Detective Scott Warner, his old partner, dating back to Dundee. Soon the two walked past the ramp the piano movers had set up to get their first look inside. The detectives were careful not to disturb the handgun magazine, which was right on the threshold as they had been warned. Moy spotted other things too, including a single shell casing lying not far from the clip and a bullet hole in the front door. Stepping into the entryway, the detectives were greeted by the smell of death. It was clear the victims had not been killed on this day. They spied the first body right in front of them. The body of the second victim was also visible from where they stood, off to the left in the living room. And there was blood, an enormous amount of blood, in wide crimson pools and scattered in droplets on the floor, furniture, and walls. Moyes could already see this was no murder-suicide. Both these victims had lost their lives in a violent struggle to the death To Moyes, it seemed the first victim had been accosted at the front door and shot right there. Moyes immediately noticed the apparent gunshot wounds visible through the man's clothes. But there was also the vicious stab wounds to the side of the neck. It looked to Moyes that whoever killed this man wanted to make sure he was dead. This was no casual killing. This was personal. Moyes and Warner drifted off to the left towards a second body. But before they got there, they came upon more gun parts kind of a gun nut himself, Moyes recognized these parts right away. There was an inner recoil spring and a rod from a semi-automatic handgun. There was also a U-shaped piece of metal, part of the gun's frame that had broken off. He figured that metal fracture was why the gun had broken apart, causing all these other pieces to fall to the floor. As Moyes stood over the female victim, he saw a bloody kitchen knife with a weathered and wooden handle lying beneath her. Whoever this woman was, Moyes could tell she had fought off that knife with every ounce of life she had. Blood had been propelled in all directions. Moyes recognized the many defensive wounds on her hands and arms. The woman had also suffered an obvious bludgeoning wound near the top of her head. Moyes then saw what appeared to be a fatal wound, a series of major cuts to the right side of her neck. Eyeing this crime scene for the first time, Moyes and Warner were noticing some things that were immediately familiar to them. A pair of victims, a beautiful home, valuables all around with no sign of theft, and most notably, knife wounds to the sides of their necks. Warner would even later recall that the two detectives exchanged a couple of knowing looks as they carefully stepped through the carnage. Could this be... Their tour of the home then took them into the adjoining kitchen, where they saw two drawers had been pulled open. One was a junk drawer, but the other stood out. Amid the jumble of kitchen gadgets that were in the drawer, there were kitchen knives with weathered wooden handles, knives that exactly matched the ones used to attack these victims. Just like in Dundee, they had been killed with the kitchen knives taken right from their home. There were so many things that started to remind them of the Dundee murders. God, I hope this isn't what it looks like, Moy said, as the detectives finished their initial walkthrough and stepped outside. The two talked about the striking similarities between these killings and the Dundee slayings five years earlier. They weren't totally convinced that they were related. In fact, it would take a phone call from downtown minutes later to convince the detectives that what they had just seen was not some strange coincidence. Nick Herford, another detective on Moyes' team, was still back in the office. He had done the paperwork to get the search warrant for the house. Then afterwards, he worked with Sergeant Sheila Check trying to determine the possible identities of the victims. Check looked at the county property records and found the registered owner of the house Roger A. Brumbach. To get a better idea of who he was, she simply typed his name into Google. Among the top results popping up on our screen was one for a Dr. Roger A. Brumbach, M.D. It showed he was a physician affiliated with Creighton University's medical school. Digging further, Check determined that Brumbach had been a department chair at Creighton, and of all places, the pathology department. It was like a bolt of lightning. Check instantly knew the significance of her finding. In fact, years later, Hertford recalled Check's words as she looked away from her computer screen and turned to him. He's back. On our next episode, the Omaha police form a task force to catch a serial killer. And out of the blue, a suspect emerges. Well, thanks for listening
1: to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. The series was written by Omaha World Herald staff writer Henry Cordes, based on his reporting with fellow World Herald journalist Todd Cooper, and it was read by the World Herald's digital director, Z Long. You can get loads of other information at omaha.com, and links to relevant articles and content can be found in the show notes. Make sure that you're subscribed to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles wherever you listen to your podcasts, so you can be the first to hear our next episode, coming out in one week. The show was produced and edited by me, Chris Lay, with tremendous thanks to Henry Cordes, Todd Cooper, Z Long, and the rest of the team at the Omaha World-Herald for the work they put in covering, researching, and recording the story. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay.